The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au. Good evening and welcome to the Buddhist Society of Victoria's Monday Night Guided Meditation, live streamed from Newbury Buddhist Monastery. And it's rather a chilly night here, so it'll be nice to have a, a meditation and be inside and to go inside the mind. And this is Ajahn Nisarano speaking. And uh, I am a Australian Buddhist monk who ordained, for those who don't know me, an Australian Buddhist monk who ordained with Ajahn Brahm 20, full ordination 23 years ago. And for 14 of those years, I lived, almost 14 years, lived in Sri Lanka. And eight of them in a cave, which was great, a wonderful experience. And now I am based at Newbury Buddhist Monastery outside um, Melbourne in Victoria, Australia. And as usual this evening, the format will be uh, an introduction, followed by the guided meditation, then the bell, it says, and then comments, questions or complaints. And if you have uh, questions or comments you'd like to make, please uh, enter them in the YouTube live chat if you can see where that is. All right. So that's the format for this evening. So this evening I thought I'd uh, continue a theme that I started yesterday when I gave a talk at the Buddhist Society of Victoria in the city in Melbourne, in at East Melbourne, at the Buddha Loka Centre. I gave a talk on non-self, anatta. So this evening I thought we would try a, a guided contemplation on non-self. And uh, the... This is a, the Buddha recommended developing the perception of non-self in order to develop the, the deeper, deepener our understanding so it can ripen into direct experience, abhinya, so we can see for ourselves. And this is the essence of insight. Because as I often say, the Buddha's wisdom, the Buddha's insight is his insight, his wisdom, and he is encouraging us to see for ourselves, not just to believe, that's not enough, uh, it's to see for ourselves, and that can lead, of course, to the first stage of enlightenment, stream entry, um, so one or sotapanna, or they call it sotapati, they can call it too. And that the essence of that experience, of course, is that there is no permanent essence inside. There is no permanent me in this mind or in this body. And that is the breakthrough. And very interestingly, the path really only begins with the first stage of enlightenment in the sense that this is the path to enlightenment begins there. And the Buddha says, someone that has seen this at a very deep level becomes a learner. And so they get their L plates. And so they are beginning on the path to become fully awakened. And until we get to that stage, we're not even learners, but we're finding our ways towards. If we practice the Noble Eightfold Path, we're going towards that experience of stream entry, that understanding of non self which is often triggered by seeing the impermanence of everything and uh, because of the impermanence, seeing dukkha, 
the unsatisfactoriness of things, how they can't permanently satisfy us, can't permanent, permanently, we can't permanently find happiness in our experiences. And uh, of course, and because of those things, um, that there is non-self, there is no permanent self. If everything else is impermanent, how can there be permanent me? And of course, one story that really um, highlights some of this is uh, a time, an Anjan, one of Anjan Brahm's famous stories, many people will know this story, that uh, he said this was a time when Ajahn Chah was trying to enlighten him. <laughs> and uh, evidently Ajahn Chah used to come to the monastery where the foreign monks practiced, Wat Pan every week at that time, and have uh, give a Dhamma talk, um, and then have a sauna. They had a sauna built there, I think mainly to attract Ajahn Chah, because his health was failing, and the sauna was uh, actually um, very helpful for his health. And so on this occasion, he'd given a wonderful Dhamma talk, and Ajahn Brahm was very, very inspired, and he thought, oh, rather than going to help his teacher in the sauna, there are many other monks anyway helping, he thought he would meditate and use the energy of inspiration to uh, deepen his meditation. And sure enough, it worked. <laughs> and he said he had a very deep meditation. And then when he came out of that deep meditation, he said, it's either half an hour or an hour. I think time is very hard to uh, um, follow when you're having when there's a deep when one's in a deep meditation. So he, when he came out, he immediately thought of uh, Ajahn Chah. So he thought he'd go to the sauna and see if he could help. And of course, he met him on the way. And then Ajahn Chah, um, he says Ajahn Brahm says he could see probably that he looked very peaceful uh, and that he had probably had quite a deep uh, meditation. And so Ajahn Chah asked him this uh, wonderful question. <laughs> he just said to him, why a Brahmavanksa? And uh, Ajahn Brah, very honestly, he said, I don't know. <laughs> Isn't that good? And then Ajahn Chah said to him, after he laughed, he said, if anyone asks you that question, the answer is, there is nothing. And uh, then he, Ajahn Chah said, do you understand? And he said, Ajahn Brahm said, yes. And Ajahn Chah laughed and said, no, you don't. <laughs> and then he went off to back to his monastery. Wat Pa Pong went to the car, went, went back to his monastery. So that is, this. there is nothing is pointing to. There is no uh, self. The, the, this body and mind does not contain a self. And I'll get into that with, talk about that a little bit more um, with a sutta that I'm going to use to talk about non-self and to use for the guided meditation. But one of the approaches the Buddha uses, the, the main approach actually the Buddha uses for analyzing things, breaking them down into their parts, really uh, removes this, fear, this, this idea of uh, uh, the illusion of compactness or wholeness so that it removes this sense of a self because when you look at the parts you just can't find something that you'd necessarily think oh that's me um, so this is one of the approaches that he has and uh, of course one of the early ways that the Buddha was called he was called Vibhajavadi 
Abhibhajavadi. So this is a teacher of a doctrine of analysis, looking at things and breaking them down. Vibhaja is like breaking things down into their parts. And this is a way of of removing this illusion of a self. And it's a way of really going deep into what we regard to be a self, how we take ourselves to be. And so the Buddha, he said the way we could uh, develop uh, this insight into non-self is starting with um, developing the perception of non-self. And of course the famous... There's a famous sutta, I think many people here will know it, the Giri Mananda Sutta. And this is, of course, a collection of ten perceptions we can develop. And these perceptions ripen in insight, different insights, but they're all uh, going towards liberating insights. And in Buddhist countries, it's used as a paritta. When people are really sick, they chant these ten perceptions. Uh, and uh, this is... Um, a protection uh, in terms of regaining their health. But of course, <laughs> the real protection <laughs> is actually the meaning of what the, what the chanting uh, and the practice of those perceptions. That will really protect us. Because the Buddha said um, uh, that the one who practices the Dhamma is protected by the Dhamma. And so the, that uh, perception that from the Girimananda sutra, sutra, I'll read out and then I'll actually take another sutra that's very similar but gives you more. And uh, this is uh, the second perception in the, that series of ten. And, he's, and the uh, Buddha says, And what, Ananda, is the perception of non-self? Here, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, a monk reflects thus, the I is non-self, forms a non-self, the ear is non-self, sounds a non-self, the nose is non-self, odours a non-self, the tongue is non-self, tastes a non-self, the body is non-self, tactile objects, touch objects, are non-self. The mind is non-self. Mental phenomena or mental states are non-self. Thus one dwells contemplating non-self in these six internal and six external sense spaces. This is called the perception of non-self. So that's uh, that's the, the recommendation. And that's quite a, a short way of looking at non-self, but... I thought another sutta that would be very interesting because it actually ties into <laughs> what Ajahn Chah said about there is nothing. And this is uh, talking about non-self in terms of emptiness. Because, of course, emptiness is a, is a, a theme in the Pali suttas, but it's much more uh, developed in the Mahayana suttas, much more emphasis, you could say. Um, so this sutta, I'll just read out to you, and um, you get a feeling for uh, this non-self, and I'll, descri- I'll, g- I'll give a commentary about it. Again, it's the Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, Bhante, it is said, empty is the world, empty is the world, 
In what way, Bhante, is it said? Empty is the world. Ananda, it is because the world is empty of self and what belongs to self that it is said, empty is the world. And what is empty of self and what, be and what belongs to self? The I, Ananda, is empty of self and of what belongs to a self. Forms are empty. I consciousness is empty. I contact is empty. And whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition, whether that feeling is pleasant or painful or neither uh, painful nor pleasant, that too is empty of self and of what belongs to a self. And the same for the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body and the mind. It is because, it is Ananda, because it is empty of self and of what belongs to self that it is said, empty is the world. So that's, that's quite, a, it's quite a deep teaching. <laughs> it's a very deep teaching, but it's one that's well worth um, developing the perception of because this perception of um, the non-self will lead, not only does it lead to enlightenment, it leads to happiness too and putting down a big burden which is the sense we have of ourself. As I mentioned, emptiness is a very important concept in um, Mahayana, um, but it's not as um, given as much emphasis in Theravada, because the and the main emphasis is more on the experiential side, like the empty of a self is far more uh, prominent in the Buddhist in the teachings in Theravada, and it's it's looking at that. At, uh, when we say that it's uh, the body and the mind are empty of the self, that it cannot be found if we look for it. But of course, for many people, they, they experience this self, the sense of self, as very real. And, and it arises, doesn't it, from the way we define ourselves, uh, whether a man, woman, smart, dumb, intelligent, uh, uh, good-looking, not good-looking, all these sorts of labels and identifications which actually can give rise to a lot of uh, uh, suffering and, unha and unhappiness. And if we tend, to, we tend to compare ourselves, and this is called conceit, then we can become quite unhappy that we're either... Well, we can become happy if we feel we're better, but if we feel we are worse than others or the same, we may not be so happy. So when we, we say that, uh, uh, when we're talking about self, it's really what we're identifying with, what we consider to be us, what, and in the terms of this sutta, what we consider to own, what belongs to us. And so the, the Buddha mentions, so the first contemplation, of course, is are we the ear, eyes, ears, tongue, nose, body, or mind? If you say to somebody, are you the eyes, they definitely say no. Nose, tongue, uh, um, uh, ears, tongue, nose and body. Uh, well, 
Tongue and body and ears probably not. Body maybe and mind maybe. But this is really an exploration to see where we find, whether we have this sense of self. Because there's often a big identification with our bodies, how they look and um, how they function too. And our language emphasizes this identification with the body. Oh, you're looking good today. <laughs> really means the body is looking good to go today. Um, so this, uh, the body and the mind, is probably more where people uh, tend to consider this sense of self. And do these things belong to us? Do I, I mean, that's an interesting, these are sort of questions to ask ourselves. Do they really belong to us? And I think... Wow, well, they come with the body, that's for sure. And one of the ways um, uh, we, we can consider whether they belong to us is if we can control them. This is another idea from another teaching by the Buddha, the Anattalakana Sutta, the uh, characteristic of non-self. And uh, so can we stop from seeing, the hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, all these things, and thinking, um, if things are unpleasant? No. <laughs> I don't know anybody that can do you know, selective experience through the senses. Not possible. And can we stop this body and these, uh, um, uh, these organs, the eye, the, the nose, the ears, and so on, can we stop them from getting sick, uh, getting old, and dying? Not really. Are we, and the, the next the Buddha continues, of course, with the, the, the objects of the senses. And we can ask, are we these visual forms that we can see, the sounds we can hear, the tastes, the smells we can smell, the mental states we experience, or do they belong to us? And of course, we realize they're external, so they're even less uh, a sense of we are this these objects that are external to our sense organs or sense bases, and do we do they belong to us? Well, can't really own sights, smells, tastes, touches. But the thing we don't often think is about the mind. Do they all these uh, thoughts, all these emotions? Do they belong to us? Now that's an interesting reflection. Or do they arise due to causes and conditions, you know, or what we've been focusing on, the influences on us, you know, through the media, through our friends, through our upbringing, through our culture. So many different avenues of influences and conditioning that are responsible to a large extent for what flows through the mind. <laughs> I mean, many people have seen this too when the obsessive thought starts and you just... It's not possible to stop. It just keeps going and going. The more you try to stop that sort of uh, thinking that just keeps going and going, the, the stronger it gets and the more it continues and the more upset we often get. And then the Buddha continues because he's looking at experience. So you have, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute, and then he says, then we, we can reflect, are we the different types of sense consciousnesses? So this is the consciousness arising from seeing, 
from the eye, from the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body and the mind? Are we really these different sense consciousnesses? And or do they and do they belong to us? So in the Buddha's teaching, in order for us to experience a, a sen- have a sensory experience, we need the sense organ or sense base. We need the object to be there, and we need this sense consciousness. And this is sense consciousness is almost like the software that can access, can make, uh, give rise to the experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. And it needs, we need this sense consciousness to be engaged. If it's not working, if we are, for instance, watching a video, watching TV or a movie or whatever, and somebody is speaking to us, we may not hear them even, because the the sense consciousness that's totally involved sometimes, if the movie's good, if the video's good, um, is sight. And so we can't hear. And there's a wonderful, funny story that Ajahn Brahm tells, that I think in Malaysia, where some people were so intent on a television program or a video that a thief broke in and was stealing stuff from literally behind their backs in the same room. It's hard to believe. But their sense consciousness was focused on sight only and hearing, but only hearing what they were were uh, viewing as it were so and then the the buddha is looking at experience so once we have these three things you know we have a functioning organ or base like the eye the some people are blind and some people are deaf so it's not working for them uh, and once we have the the organ the object and the sense consciousness then we can have contact we have liftoff, <laughs> then we have the experience of the contact through the, these, through seeing, through the eye, the ear, nose, tongue, body and mind. So we can also think, do I own these contacts, this experience? And it's one of the reflections in the Buddha's teaching is that we cannot, <laughs> as much as we'd like, turn off contact. That's it's it's fine if it's very pleasant and positive, isn't it? Enjoyable. But if it's unpleasant, still can't turn it off. <laughs> if it's neutral, can't turn it off. So that's another aspect of uh, the teaching, you know, this about the nature of contact and whether this is ourselves. And the next thing is getting closer, I think, to what some people would take as self. Are we the different types of feeling that arise from these different contexts. And the different types of feelings the Buddha is talking about is pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, and neutral. And uh, most people identify with pleasant um, and uh, they want to get away from the unpleasant and the neutral world. They don't pay much attention. And do we, or, and do we, these feelings belong to us? Do we own them? Well, again, it would depend on whether you think we can control them. So these feelings um, that arise can give, when it's a pleasant feeling, of course it gives rise to wanting to get, coming from desire or craving, tanha. But if it's an unpleasant feeling, we want to get rid of it, and that's coming from aversion or ill will. And if it's neutral feeling, well, we're not too interested and we tend to ignore it. So... And I'll just finish here with the the final one, uh, a reading from the Buddha on 
And it's to do with ownership, because one of the central things about um, non-self is the things we think we own, that, that we take as a sense of self. And so this is a teaching called Not Yours, and it's one of my favorites, actually. So it's a good one to finish before we start the guided meditation. And it starts, monks, whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. And what is it, monks, that is not yours? Form is not yours. This is like physical form. Abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. Feeling is not yours. Perception is not yours. Willed activities are not yours. Sense consciousness is not yours. Abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. And then this wonderful simile uh, that the Buddha gives. Suppose, monks, people were to carry off the grass, the sticks, the branches and leaves in this Jetta's Grove. That's the Buddha's monastery in Asavati or to burn them, or to do with them as they wish. Would you think people are carrying us off, or burning us, or doing with us as they wish? And then the monks reply, No, Bhante. For what reason? Because it is neither ourself, nor what belongs to ourself. So too, because uh, form, uh, feeling, perception, willed activities, and sense consciousness are not yours. Abandon them. When you have abandoned them, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. So this ownership is really a crucial thing in what we take to be self. So if something belongs to somebody else, we're not too concerned. Uh, someone else's child is not the same as our child. <laughs> someone else's car or house is not the same as ours. But um, when we reflect that the body and mind are not ours, that they've arisen due to causes and conditions, and the conditions are like our parents, our past karma, and that they will pass away when those causes and conditions cease, cease. the body, um, for the body de at, the, at the point of death, and for the mind only possible if for it to cease at parinibbana. Otherwise, it just keeps going on, getting new bodies, for a new lives. And it's good to reflect that our bodies are just mere vehicles for the mind. But even the mind doesn't belong to us. We can't control it, but we can influence it. And using the Buddha's teaching, we can liberate it and so that it is fully awakened, that becomes an arahant. And of course, uh, the other I was just going to finish off by mentioning that the other things that the Buddha mentions about non-self, other ways of looking at it, from the Anattalakana Sutta particularly, is that if something causes a lot of grief, suffering, uh, problems, difficulties, dukkha, it isn't worthy of calling a self. Because a self shouldn't be causing us a lot of problems if it were a permanent entity. And uh, so, and we can ask ourselves, do our bodies and minds cause us suffering, problems and difficulties? 
And of course the answer is, yes, big time. <laughs> Especially as bodies get older and if our minds are not very well developed, they can have a lot of negative qualities that cause us a lot of grief. And I mentioned before, if we can't control it, that's another aspect of non-self. And that we cannot say to our bodies and minds, be like this, don't be like that. We can say it, but it won't do it. <laughs> uh, and we can't say to our bodies, don't get sick, don't get old, don't die. And we can't say to our minds, don't think, don't, be, don't feel depressed, don't feel anxious, don't feel angry, etc. These things we, we can't do. But we can develop the mind so that these uh, different emotions... Uh, thinking as well, can be reduced and eventually can be completely purified by the mind understanding things as as they truly are. So that's a whole lot. People haven't got mental indigestion there. <laughs> and now we can do the have the guided meditation. So, And the guided meditation will be for about uh, 40 minutes, I think. Now it's getting a bit late. 40 minutes, and uh, it's a guided contemplation, really, not meditation. So we can close the eyes and come into the present. And we can let go of the past and future. So we're free here in the present moment, out of the prism of what has happened, today or before this, before today, and out of the prism of who we think we are, just enjoying being here in the present moment. And we can give attention to the body just to see that it's uh, set up for the um, guided contemplation, that it, the head feels in a good position over the shoulders, balanced over the shoulders, and the shoulders over the hips. And we can move the shoulders to uh, relax them, to let go of any tensions in the shoulders, and make any adjustments that we need in order for the body to be comfortable for this period of this meditation, 40 minutes. And we can be sitting on a chair, on a cushion, however we wish. It's often good that the back is reasonably straight, think the body reasonably balanced, but not tense.
And now we can relax the body mentally. We can start at the top of the head, the back of the head, sides of the head, and relax this area, soothe it, give it a mental massage. And we can move the attention to the forehead and soothe that, relax that area. And then moving the attention down to around the eyes, giving them this warmth and kindness, ease. And then moving the attention down the face to the cheeks and around the mouth and the chin, the jaw, allowing them to really relax. To let go of any tensions, any strain, any Tiredness. Now we can move the attention to the neck, all around the neck, giving it a very good mental massage. Now bringing to mind the right shoulder, starting at the neck and slowly moving along the right shoulder, soothing it, giving it this warm, relaxing, kind attention. And now we can bring to mind the right arm and right hand. And we can slowly move our attention down the right arm to take in the elbow, the wrist, the hand and the fingers with this soothing, relaxing, mental massage.
Now we can bring to mind the left shoulder. Slowly move our attention along the left shoulder, soothing the left shoulder, allowing it to let go of the burdens of the day. With this warm, kind attention. We're bringing to mind the left arm, starting at the top of the left arm and moving our attention slowly down the left arm all around to take in the elbow, wrist, hand and fingers with a soothing, relaxing, warm attention. Now bringing to mind the back, starting just below the shoulders and moving our attention down the back, giving it a good mental massage, giving warmth and healing to any painful or hard areas. Now bringing to mind the front of the body, starting just below the shoulders and moving our attention slowly down the front of the body to include the chest, diaphragm, stomach and abdomen area, giving these areas this kindness and warmth, giving this relaxing mental massage.
and now bringing to mind the right leg, starting at the top of the right leg and moving our attention slowly down the right leg all around to include the knee, the ankle, foot and toes, giving it this mental massage with kindness and warmth that relaxes and eases any tension or hardness in the right leg. And now bringing to mind the left leg, starting at the top of the left leg and moving our attention slowly down the left leg all around to include the knee, ankle, foot and toes, soothing them with this warm, relaxing attention. Now we can become aware of the whole body just as sitting or however we find ourselves how the body is sitting comfortably just aware of the whole body the pressure of sitting or however the body is
And we can bring to mind the intention for the guided contemplation this evening is to contemplate what we take to be ourselves. And to begin with, we can uh, bring up uh, bring to bring up a positive emotion, a wholesome emotion for the meditation. And that's bringing to mind someone very someone or something that brings up a feeling of caring in us. And it can be a, a person, but not a partner. Uh, it can be the caring for a child, a friend, someone who is sick. Someone who we give support to. And it can even be a stranger who needs help. Maybe they've had an accident or suddenly fallen ill. Or for many people it can be animals that need caring, dogs, cats, birds, whatever. This feeling of caring for someone or an animal And we can get in touch with this feeling of caring or looking after. It's a form of kindness. We can fill our bodies and minds with this feeling of caring, of kindness, just savouring it or experiencing how that feels in this body and mind. Caring for ourselves, caring for what we're experiencing at the moment. Not pushing things away, not judging them, if they're, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, just caring for them. And we can extend this uh, caring, feeling of caring and kindness 
to whatever we're experiencing here in the present moment, be it sounds or feelings in the body uh, or the temperature of the room, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, just having this uh, feeling of caring, of kindness towards whatever we're experiencing. And when the breath comes to us and we become aware of it, we can combine this feeling of caring with the breath, going in and going out. We're just caring for the breath, like the person or animal we originally thought of. And if you lose the breath, gently return to it when you become aware that it's gone. And bring to mind that object that brought up the feeling of caring or kindness. And we can continue to care for the breath.
And now we can start the contemplation, just bringing to mind for each for ourselves, am I the eyes, these ears, tongue, nose, body or mind? Do these things really belong to me? Can I control them? Can I stop them from seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, uh, touching things that I find unpleasant? Can I stop them from getting old, sick and dying? Next, we can ask ourselves, am I the visual forms I see? All the different visual forms, pleasant, beautiful, ugly, whatever. Am I the sounds that I hear? Whether it be the beautiful music or the sound of traffic. Am I the tastes that I can taste? Am I the smells that I can smell? Or am I the mental states that I can experience? And do these things belong to me? Do I, can I control them? So I only have pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant tastes, or not.
next we can ask ourselves, am I the different types of sense consciousnesses that, that I need to experience the world, to experience the mind? That's eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, bodily touch consciousness or mind consciousness. Am I these? Or, and, or do they belong to me, these types of consciousness? And uh, we can reflect, or I can reflect, that am I the different types of contact? Those are the, this is the process of connecting to the different sense experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and also thinking. Or do these types of contact belong to me? And lastly, we can reflect, am I the different types of feelings that uh, arise from the different types of contexts that I've experienced? And these feelings, am I the pleasant feelings, the unpleasant feelings, or the neutral feelings? And we can ask, do these feelings always stay, this, stay the same? Or are they changing, constantly changing? And lastly, do I own these feelings? Do they belong to me?
and now we can let go of the contemplation and come back to the present moment. And we can share the energy of this meditation, the feeling, whatever feeling of caring and peace, as well as the understanding we've developed, sharing it with all those who who are listening to this guided contemplation. and sharing it with all beings in the area around which we live in. And sharing the energy of this meditation, contemplation, in ever-widening circles with all beings until we cover the whole of the earth and beyond. And we include all human beings, animals, insects and unseen beings. And we can just reflect on this contemplation now and ask ourselves, did I experience a feeling of caring or kindness or not? And what were the causes for this feeling, the feeling that I experienced to arise? And did I develop or uh, develop the perception of non-self or experience a shift in understanding in my relationship to the body and the mind? And what were the causes, important causes for changing the way I see this body and mind? And we can finish with the having an aspiration or intention to develop 
this feeling of caring for ourselves and others, caring for our bodies and minds, and to develop the perception of non-self by paying attention to our experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching in order to understand, to develop this perception of non-self. And when I ring the bell, please come out of the meditation and you can relax the body. Center, who's doing looking after the live streaming? Thank you very much. If there are any questions or comments or complaints, thank you, Ajahn. <laughs> we do have a few questions. Yeah. The first question is from friends. From oh, friends, good. Mm. Dear Ajahn, are you really sure there is rebirth? I often have doubts. Thank you for your teaching and guide meditations in such a gentle voice. Right, thank you from France. I hope you could hear it. <laughs> Sometimes it gets very soft when I'm um, giving the guided meditation. But yes, I think rebirth is, is something that uh, if you have doubts about, that's very natural if we can't remember our previous rebirths. But I always say to people, you know, if you have doubts about it, then you know, go to YouTube and type in reincarnation. Just see what you comes up. There's lots, loads of videos of people, particularly children, who remember their rebirths. Just watch them and just think, are these for real? <laughs> and I think very, for me, you know, I find that very convincing. It's not a matter of, um, you know, trying to convince a person or whatever. They, what convinces us is our experience. So if you see these um, videos of children particularly who remember past lives, I think, you know, then you can make up your own mind, really. But of course, you know, there are other avenues for, for um, discovering whether rebirth is in fact the case. You know, we can do past life regression. Some people using that method of hypnotism can experience a past life and that that can be very convincing for them too and I've heard some quite extraordinary cases um, of people who've remembered past lives in quite a bit of detail and the other way of course is from your own direct experience of meditation 
And I know, um, as I often mention, Ajahn Brahm encourages people when they have deep meditation. You know, it's been really, there's been some stillness in the mind. Maybe it's not jhana. If it is jhana, that's even better after the jhana. Um, And then to just ask the mind, um, what's my earliest uh, memory? And then that the mind, if it has got uh, samadhi, the stillness in it, it can do it. It'll go back to the earliest memory, maybe as a baby or something like that. And then if that works, then you can ask the mind earlier, please. And then it can go to the ne- to a previous life. Having said that, some people do come back to Ajahn Brahm and complain. They said, it was terrible, I never want to do that again. And then Ajahn Brahm will ask them, what did you experience? And of course, what, you oft, what people often experience from the past life are the very intense experiences. What's that? First intense experience is death <laughs> from the past life. But Ajahn Brahm says, no, 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 when that happens, just say to the mind, earlier please. <laughs> and so that way, from your own experience, you can get that uh, um, direct experience uh, insight into rebirth for yourself you can study of course you can look at uh, professor ian stevenson's work that's all, all is very interesting and the videos i think are more um convincing because we see a real person so those are ways that we can um, develop this understanding of rebirth and maybe experience it for ourselves keeping in mind that the buddha himself said before he became the Buddha and was a cause for him becoming the Buddha, he experienced not one or two past lives, but millions. And I think anybody, I often say to people, if you experience millions of past lives, what would you say? And I would say, too much, enough. Let's finish with this. But it would also bring up a lot of very uh, valuable uh, reflections because we would see impermanence on an incredible scale. This is like millions of years, eons they call it. And so we'd see impermanence like that. We'd also see that in those lives, I never really got this perfect happiness, you know, lasting happiness. It was always a bit of a mixture and always changing. And also uh, the big question I would I would come out with, and I'm sure the Bodhisattva did too, which one of them was me? <laughs> Which one of these millions of lives was me, you know? And seeing that, yeah, it's a process, you know, it's a process change over these life, over these life times. There was no fixed, permanent, essential me in any of those lives. It was just a development, a change over those period, over that all that vast expanse of time. So I would say to you, you know, just look at those in those areas, you know, uh, at rebirth. Because if we do um, have a feeling for rebirth, it gives the practice another, um, uh, it gives the practice uh, more power because we understand why the Buddha taught what he taught. If you can see that this um, uh, samsara, this the cycle of being born and reborn again, it's going to go on and on and on with varying degrees of happiness and unhappiness, suffering. Then, you know, you can see this gives us an incentive to work towards putting an end to rebirth.
So I'd say, first of all, start with the YouTube. It's always very intriguing. Um, you can go on to near-death experiences. are really interesting too. They're great. And so they're very convincing when you see people's first-hand experience. So thank you very much from France. Thank you, Ajahn. Our next question is on Tokyo. Tokyo. Oh, yes. 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 What to do with feelings if they aren't mine? I sometimes feel overwhelmed by my own emotional reactions. Mm, mm. Yes. What? When we see that uh, feelings are not not ours, if they're not ours, how come we're suffering from them? That's, that's probably what you're trying to say too. The, what, what we, as you know, in a Buddhist context, what we look for are the causes and conditions for these feelings coming up. Um, and when we do that, when we investigate, you know, where they're coming from, uh, what's brought them up, you know, then it actually reduces uh, the impact of negative emotions, you know, grief and uh, uh, depression, anxiety, all the fear, all these sorts of things, anger, these sorts of things. We, it can, we're looking at it rather than being it. We're seeing it, not being it. So the point of all the experiences of the body and mind is they're coming from causes and conditions giving rise to what we're experiencing. And our job as practitioners is to work on changing the causes and conditions as much as we can. And one of the biggest changes in uh, for the positive is taking on board some of the teachings of uh, the Buddha. That can help us a lot. And when we see that, um, you know, these feelings, if you really see they're not me, they're not mine, if they were me, which one of them is me? None of them are permanent. They keep coming and going. But if we can really see at a deep level, this is not just denial, uh, see at a deep level that these feelings come and go. I haven't, they're not mine. I don't control, I can't control them then it can lead to a lightness and also like a, a stepping back from it, uh, stepping back from these emotions and just seeing them for what they are. These, um, you know, pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neutral feeling, particularly pleasant and painful feeling, they're really running our lives. We're slaves to them. <laughs> We're running after the, the pleasant feelings like crazy, whether it be through seeing wonderful videos or wonderful sights on holiday, if we could go anywhere, <laughs> except in our own countries. Um, nice uh, sounds, beautiful sounds, music, conversations, food, all these things. You know, um, we can see uh the uh the feelings that these generate but they come and go we can't control them sometimes pleasant sometimes unpleasant so this gives us it liberates us to a large extent from this you know this enslavement to feeling uh it's one of the the things that keeps us seesawing you know not finding the middle the middle ground as it were between the pleasant and the unpleasant, finding that area of the neutral ground or the equanimous mind. So this can help us a lot when we actually um, can see things as non-self because it's a big 
oh, um, unburdening because we can feel so light that we know we're not really responsible for them. They are coming due to causes and conditions, but we can work on the causes and conditions to, and that can change the feelings we experience, the emotions we can experience. Because this path is a path of purification. It's a path of reducing the negative emotions, whether it be, you know, strong desires, whether it be strong anger, ill will, depression, fear, all these things, whether it be strong delusion, particularly the sense of of self, you know, or what I want, what I need, <laughs> etc., except what I like, what I don't like, all those things. So this this path is really reducing them, and as it were, it's like a conditioning process. Ajahn Brahm calls it brainwashing, that uh, we are changing the conditioning to a more positive, more wholesome one. We're not letting a lot of the negative influences, maybe through media, through internet, through uh, what it, conspiracy theories, whatever it is that uh, is influencing our thinking, particularly towards the negative. You know, it can be the news. <laughs> People get very fearful and anxious, perhaps, from seeing the news because so much of it is negative. So I, I'd say that to, to you about those feelings uh, the emotional feelings being not me, not mine, not the self. Yeah, hope it helps. Yep. Thank you, Ajahn. We do have five minutes left. Do you think we can fit one more big question? Yes, you can. Yes, I know the big question. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, Ajahn. So the last question is actually from Hong Kong. Yes. Today we do have quite some questions from different countries <laughs> yeah that's right it's been all over none from australia <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true <laughs> right okay that's the question what do you think about finding the meaning or the purpose of life does everyone need to find meaning of life or actually just living in the present moment is good enough right I think meaning and purpose is just essential for a human being, actually, for our happiness and well-being. And, you know, there are whole schools of psychology. I think it's called Logotherapy by Viktor Frankl that's based on that. And it, and his, this is Viktor Frankl was a psychologist who lived in uh, um, Germany. At, he was Jewish <laughs> in Germany at the time of Adolf Hitler, not a good combination, and ended up in a concentration camp. And um, but because he was a, a psychologist, a psychiatrist actually, and a doctor, he trained medically. He was they used him. He was they, they kept him alive. But he saw from his experience in the concentration camps those people that had a meaning or a purpose in their life, they survived. They lived. People who didn't have a meaning or purpose didn't survive. And that meaning or purpose. It could be very individual in the context of their lives, you know, just surviving or just looking after a brother, a sister, you know, somebody like that. So that meaning was very important. And he gave one very good example, one sticks in my mind, of a man who had this dream that the, the Second World War would end on a certain day in March 1944, 44, somewhere before the end of the war anyway. 
and he he was convinced it would happen and then when the uh, the day came and went the war hadn't ended he was still in the concentration camp <laughs> very soon after that victor frankl said he died because his meaning and his purpose were gone because he felt that this this is what he was living for so th- our meaning or purpose is something that gives us strength for continuing our lives. And of course, you know, in a Buddhist context, it's really the meaning and purpose of our lives is to learn from life, to learn about our bodies and minds, and hence about everyone's bodies and minds, to, you know, to understand the deep aspects of existence, you know, the, these aspects that the Buddha said, that whether a Buddha exists or not, they're still here. <laughs> and they are, you know, this uh, impermanence, that's a big part of existence. But impermanence, it's like transience, it's like change, it's um, uh, nothing lasts. It's a very uh, deep um, experience of uh, emotionally experienced as, you know, it can be like uncertainty, unpredictability, unreliability, the fact that we don't know what's coming. And that's a, a deep thing to understand. And so is dukkha, you know, the, the fact of um, because of this impermanence, not being able to find a lasting, permanent, satisfying happiness. And also, you know, finding out what we take ourselves to be, this, uh, this, um, what we think is this self, this me, uh, that's inside us. And this contemplation this evening is really not aimed to, to answer that. It's really to arouse, you know, questions in our mind to see where, you know, we, th- we feel a sense of self exists. So these three important areas are always, you know, uh, give meaning and purpose to our lives just and the purpose is to learn from what we experience often we can <laughs> people don't don't uh, learn from it they just suffer from it <laughs> but when we learn from things it as i mentioned before it's like when we investigate it changes our relationship if we're looking at things in terms of trying to understand it learn from it it's a different ball game to just being totally immersed in it, totally overwhelmed by, by the especially difficult things, you know. But if we're trying to, if we're looking to learn to understand, that's that's great. But then, in terms of purpose, you know, one uh, it's very important to understand these things. But then, it gives rise. The more we understand the nature of life, it gives rise to these. Uh, Brahma Viharas, these four supreme emotions of loving kindness or friendliness and particularly compassion. Really, you know, when a, a, somebody understands things very deeply, wow, they feel like, wow, a lot of compassion for people. I think we know what it's about. You know, we know this is not easy, this is difficult. And so, therefore, they have a lot of compassion. And in a being like the, the Buddha, often they, they talk about his wisdom and compassion. They come together, really, because somebody that's very wise will have compassion because they know what the human situation is. And so they, and a wise being like the Buddha can help many beings. But also, there's also the other aspects of the 
Brahma Viharas, the supreme emotions, and that is having joy with other people's success and good qualities, and also having this equanimity, this acceptance of things, but with a loving, with loving kindness, you know, knowing that each of us um, is an heir of our karma, our owners of our karma, our deeds and actions of body, speech and mind. So these four areas are a natural response to developing the wisdom, this meaning, and also in a sense too, it gives purpose when we can help others actually, and that's a the only reason a Buddha exists, actually, he, he doesn't need to help himself at all, but he enormous patience and kindness because uh, uh, to to help us out of a difficult situation that he's been through, he's understood, he's seen. So this is the meaning and purpose of life. But there can be lots of other other meanings and purposes, you know, more localized that we have, and I'm sure you're. Um, uh, this person from Hong Kong, there's quite a few um, meanings and purposes that are very important for you, that give your life direction and give it energy and power. If we don't think, if we don't have a meaning and purpose in life, it's, you know, it's just, wow, it's just for living for the moment, living for pleasant feelings through sight, smells, tastes and touch through and even through the mind. And it's it's not enough for a human being, actually. We need meaning and purpose to keep us alive, you know. Otherwise, we just really um, deteriorate without that meaning and purpose. And you see a lot of people wandering about quite aimlessly, I think, because they don't know, why am I here? <laughs> What's my purpose? And people sometimes think their purpose and their meaning has to be something grand. It doesn't have to be something grand. Um, but whatever gives them, you know, the energy and the um, inspiration to continue to live and to benefit not only themselves but others. This is a really can give us a lot of energy to help others. If, but first of all, we need to help ourselves because we've got to have something to give. So I hope that's been of use to you from Hong Kong about the meaning and purpose of life. Very important. I recommend uh, uh, Viktor Frankl's book called uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning. It's a fantastic book about his experience in the concentration camps and how important meaning and purpose is in very difficult situations. Our lives are not tough like that. Their lives were really on the edge. And, so, and their meaning and purpose even more important and more difficult come by. So thank you very much for this evening and we can finish the evening by paying respects to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha using the uh, the chant because it's audio. <laughs> so please join in if you know it. Arahang Samma Sambuddha Bhagava Bhunthang Bhagavantang Abhivadehmi Svakato Bhagavatadamo Dhammang Namasami Supatipano Bhagavato Savakasango 
Sankang Namami Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. And thank you for listening and participating this evening.